You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Several animal populations are in danger of extinction. Wildlife conservationist Jeff Corwin and other scientists join the Post to discuss the new proposals they support to protect the health of our living planet. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. I'm delighted to greet this morning two experts in wildlife conservation. Dr. David Suzuki is the co-founder of the David Suzuki Foundation. Uh, He's an environmental activist and a well-known broadcaster in Canada. Jeff Corwin, who's also with us, is a well-known Emmy award-winning television broadcaster and also a biologist. Welcome to you both. Good to be here. Delighted. Thank you for joining us. Jeff, let's start with you. Over the past four decades, we've lost something like 70% of global wildlife. What's gone on and what role have humans played in this huge reduction in species? Well, Francis, it's, it's quite startling and sobering to think that in the lifetime of a healthy human being on, on Earth, of an adult, we've consumed between 60 and 70% of all nature. and the great challenge for us to figure out is how do we rectify this? We know the reasons why. And I kind of look at extinction or what, what I kind of think of as the perfect extinction storm is the result of this concoction, this formula, which includes climate change, habitat loss, pollution, species exploitation, and human population growth. All of those factors independently, we can see how that they would have an impact on the environment. But they actually don't operate in a vacuum. They conspire and influence each other. So for example, deforestation of a thousand acres of rainforest in Southeast Asia, and globally we lose about 3000 acres of rainforest every hour, but that one moment for let's say a palm oil plantation, directly leads to the black wildlife trade of endangered species, such as um, uh, orangutans and tigers. That carbon, which has been sequestered in that ecosystem, is then released into the atmosphere through the process of climate change. So we can see how these instruments of extinction work together, leading to this unprecedented moment where today we lose as many species as the result of our species as was lost when when an asteroid slammed into the earth 60 plus million years ago. Wow, David, um, help me understand a little bit more about what we lose when we lose, what we as humans lose when we lose all these animal species. What's going on here? That's the critical question. I think the problem is that We now feel that as a creature, we're so intelligent that we have somehow escaped the the web of connections or relationships that we have with the rest of life on Earth, as well as the air, the water, the soil, and the sunlight. This is the way humans have seen themselves since the beginning of our species, that we are deeply embedded in and utterly dependent on that web of relationships But now I think it began around the Renaissance when uh, people like uh, Francis Bacon were saying, uh, you know, uh, science, uh, wisdom is uh, is uh, power. 
uh, Descartes said, uh, I think, therefore I am. We started to elevate ourselves outside of the web of living things. We think we're in charge because we're so smart. We don't have to obey any of the natural laws. We can get into a machine and travel faster than the speed of sound. We can listen to sounds coming from the edge of the universe. We can look down and see in a drop of water uh, uh, all kinds of living organisms. We're really pretty super. And we're going to take over the planet and make it over in our own interest. And that's the problem. We've created our legal system, our economic system, and our political system all about serving us. But we saw uh, last week Das Gupta report out of the United Kingdom. The economic system ignores nature as if nature is irrelevant, except in the ways that we can use it. And so we've removed ourselves from the web of relationships. And so we become very, very destructive. Uh, what COVID shows us is tiny piece of RNA that can't even reproduce on its own. It's got to invade a living cell in order to make copies of itself. That tiny bit of RNA has said, hell with your boundaries. My human borders don't mean anything to me. Spread in the air. And guess what? All these anti-maskers don't acknowledge that what comes out of their nose goes straight up my nose. It seems to me there's a responsibility there. COVID is showing us We've got too big for our britches, and it's now leading to a world in which human survival has become a question. Do you think this is an extinction crisis that we're now in? Of course it is. Absolutely. We're the top predator on the planet now. And all as systems underneath us collapse, don't you think that that's going to have an impact on, on ourselves? It's right. foolhardy. Right. We live in a so, time, Francis, we yeah, live in a go time ahead. now where we lose a species on average about once every half an hour to an hour, disappears forever. Many of these species remain undiscovered and unknown to science. So when you add that up, that well within our lifetimes, the three of us today, we may see 15 to 20% of species alive today, gone in our tomorrow. My children, my daughters, which are now about to are young women, by the time they are my age and they have children, they will likely see that 50% of all species upon our planet are gone forever of no point of return. So we are in an extinction crisis and how we need to look at the loss of these remarkable species as the canary in the coal mine for the survival of our own species. Because as David has beautifully illustrated, COVID has shown us really how organic and how biological we really are. That despite all our technology, we cannot escape the frailties of, of flesh, blood, and water, and we can fall prey to the tiniest of predators. And of course, it's very likely that the COVID scenario we find ourselves in is literally us opening up the Pandora's box of disease as we exploit ecosystems around the world, especially in the tropics. Jeff, I want to take you just back quickly to pre-COVID days and your trips to Alaska, because there you saw 
whole villages disappearing underwater. Can you talk to me a little bit about the connection between climate change and conservation? Well, there's a huge connection between climate change and conservation. And, and I don't know if David probably could hark onto this in places like Canada or Alaska, where you have people that have a connection to natural resources, fishermen or other people that work in those industries. They're the first people today that validate the presence of climate change. Because when you're a remote um, Alaskan community that sits there on the banks of a river ecosystem waiting for that resource to swim up the salmon and you have to completely be relocated because the substrate beneath your feet is no longer sustainable because the melt of permafrost that shows you the power of climate change and ultimately by us rectifying or working to mitigate climate change it becomes a backdoor solution and opportunity to help recover endangered species because in the end to prevent the loss of, of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere it will require us to protect and wisely manage habitats such as forests and coastal ecosystems we know that climate change is not just a problem for nature it's very much a challenge to the survival of humanity David, but jeff you know of the things I feel about the conservation movement, we tend to uh, look at the big charismatic stuff, you know, the snow leopard or or the uh, cheetah or the, or, or the whales. But really, we've devastated the planet with this crazy idea of managing our pests with insecticides. We're killing all insects, for example, just to get at a few that are pests to us. We've sprayed, I mean, I... I've always loved insects. I have to admit, they've been a passion with me since I was a kid. And the idea that we spray insecticides to kill all insects, uh, the, and and only we're only after one or two species that are infecting our crops or spreading disease among humans. This is where we really see consequences, but we're not focused on that. We've declared war against insects. We're spraying pesticides into air, water, and soil, and now we've devastated them. And uh, uh, that, I think, is going to have huge repercussions through the web of life. We just don't understand the extent to which we are embedded and utterly dependent on nature. Francis, if I may have a moment, I uh, was invited to give a, a talk to the first um, Green Buildings Conference in Austin, Texas. This must have been in the late 1990s. Anyway, it was a big audience and there were a lot of kids in the audience. And I said, now kids, if you remember one thing about my talk, remember we are animals. I was shocked at how angry parents got. A woman came up to me and said, don't you call my daughter an animal. She's a human being. And I said, madam, I'm a biologist, and if she's not a, an animal, is she a plant? As an animal, what do you think your most, absolutely most important thing is that you need? Air. David, if you don't have David. clean air for three minutes, you're dead. If you have to breathe contaminated or polluted air, you're sick. So surely air, clean air, should be this incredible gift from nature that we acknowledge 
and we have a responsibility to protect. And it's the same, we couldn't go down water. You and I were 60 to 70% water by weight, but we leak water out of our skin and our mouth and our eyes. And if you don't have water for four to six days, you're dead. If you have to drink contaminated water, you're sick. So clean water. You know, we don't put the proper things that absolutely support us. Clean air, clean water, clean soil and the food we get and clean energy that comes from photosynthesis. Those are the things. And what delivers those, what indigenous people call the four sacred elements, earth, air, fire, and water. What delivers those to us is the web of living things that Jeff is an ex expert on now. You know, the web of life without plants, we don't have air that animals like us can breathe. Without soil organisms, the water percolates through the soil and is filtered for us. Without them, we're in trouble. So over and over again, we forget that we are still biological creatures. And our absolutely most important thing is the integrity of the web of living things that give us the most important elements. But over and over again, it's, oh, the economy. You know, what about the economy? The economy becomes a dominant thing. Jeff, a question for you. There are almost 8 billion of us now. How do we create this balance that David is outlining? That, you know, how do we feed people? How do we uh, manage interactions between wildlife and people as the populations grow? That's a great um, um, and very complex and dynamite question to answer. The truth is we may be very close to the point if we're not beyond that point of managing that situation. I believe we are the last generation to truly secure the wild legacy of our planet. And just to touch back upon what David discussed, we do kind of get distracted by the big and the sexy, what we call, what's been referred to as charismatic species syndrome. We're quick to jump to save a leopard or a lion or a tiger, understandably that these creatures are symbolic and very important to their ecosystems. But really equally important to that ecosystem is a community of termites in the rainforest where a jaguar might live. This small microcosmos community of creatures, the world of bats and amphibians, these small innocuous creatures are really the keystone species that stitch all these ecosystems together so as David had indicated, when you see something like insects or amphibian species, which have time-tested five extinctions, but yet not to survive the human extinction event, tells us that we are severely out of whack. I will tell you, I think the, the, if there is one promising opportunity when it comes to saving our planet, it would be number one is to protect habitat and to restore habitat. Number two is to find some level of, of truly meaningful um, of, of sense of sustainability of how we live with the planet. And also number three, which a lot of people don't realize, is to work with people around the world that often are connected to these imperiled ecosystems, such as rainforests in Southeast Asia or Africa, uh, South America, disenfranchised communities and empower them with economic opportunities through sustainability, make them long-term connected to the conservation of that project or that endangered ecosystem is critically important. 
because that's the challenge we face. We can't protect what we do not know and appreciate. We will never appreciate it and know it if we never get to experience and meet it. And I think for us, that is one of our greatest challenges is to know that these ecosystems and these wild species that are evaporating and vaporizing before our very eyes really are the cornerstones of the building blocks for the survival of humanity. You've both been talking about issues that play out on a global, a national, and an individual level. And I'm curious, are there any countries that are leading the way and providing models for how to live better with the wild environment it's inherited? Well, I think uh, from my experience, Bhopal, uh, sorry, yeah, Bhutan. Bhutan is one of the uh, shining lights where, uh, you know, the, the uh, king at one time in a meeting in India was asked by reporters, what is Bhutan's uh, G GNP, gross national product? And he looked at puzzled and he said, well, we, we don't care about the GNP. We care about the GHP, the gross happiness product, that, it, that uh, happiness is the goal of of his king kingship and of his uh, of government that what is this stuff about the uh, gross national product you know uh, just making more stuff and keeping the economy growing and they've got a record now i worry about it because they were quite isolated from the rest of the world until very recently now they're being assault assaulted they're surrounded by china on one hand india on the other and they've now penetrated with a road and with television, and uh, they um, they are being assaulted with all the ads saying buy a car and all that other stuff. So I don't know, but they've protected 70% uh, of their forests. All of their farming is organic. They live very, very low on the uh, ecological uh, chain. They're a, a great example, but I don't think most North Americans will want to live at the level uh, that they are at. We become so convinced that consumption and stuff is a measure of our lifestyle uh, and, and happiness that uh, we won't be able to go back to um, the kind of life that I've been leading under the COVID lockdown. COVID forced me, and at that time, I was like Jeff, I was at my cabin on an island when our government said, no more movement. And uh, fortunately, my, my wife, my youngest daughter, her husband, and three children were with us. It was the happiest time of my <laughs> life. It right. was wonderful. And, uh, right. you know, we got out every day, rain or shine. We were out in the woods get, uh, looking for, for frogs. Uh, there are a few frogs left. Uh, you'll be glad to know, Jeff. Uh, we even found an alligator lizard. I didn't know there were any reptiles uh, other than snakes there. It was a wonderful time. And so I wonder, why are we in such a hurry? Why are we rushing everywhere? You know, we got to do this. We got to let's spend time with each other. It's uh, it's wonderful. But we can't go on. <clears throat> the world is, in fact, overpopulated with our species. But it's not just a function of how many people there are. You have to multiply per capita consumption to get an idea of our population impact on, on the planet. And when you include consumption, it's the industrialized world that is just overpopulated. Far too many of us taking too much stuff out of the earth. We don't have time now. We simply have run out of time. 
we've got a crisis. And I, I look back to a time I was in my beginning, my senior year at Amherst College in 1957. Do you know what happened on October 4th? No. The Soviet Union shocked us by launching Sputnik. Right. And it was a shock. And every hour and a half, that satellite went overhead and it was going, ah, ha, ha, beep, beep, beep. And it was like it flaunting itself to American technology. Well, America responded. They had three rockets, Army, Navy, Air Force, and they set their rockets up in full television view. Every one blew up. Meanwhile, the Russians launched the first animal in space, a dog, the first man, Yuri Gagarin, the first team of cosmonauts, the first spacewalk, the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova. And the response in the United States was astonishing. Nobody said, oh my God, they're too far ahead. We can't catch up. It's going to destroy our economy. They just said, we got to catch up to these guys. And the United States began to pour money into universities, set up NASA, supporting NSF, uh, NSF all kinds of organizations. Here I am, a Canadian, studying in the United States. All I had to do was say, I like science. And they poured money at me. I mean, it was a glorious time to be a, a science student. And look at what happened. In 1962, President Kennedy said, we choose to go to the moon. And that was the beginning of the American race to get right. to the moon. At that time, the United States had no idea how the hell they were going to get there. They just knew that's a target we might be able to reach. And they poured every effort into it. And I want to tell all those people that say global warming is too much. We can't afford it. It'll destroy it. What resulted, not only was the United States the only country to land people on the moon and get them back, but every year when Nobel Prizes in Science are announced, guess who still gets a, a huge number of them? It's Americans. Because 60 years ago, the United States said, we got to catch up to these guys. And every year, NASA publishes a magazine called Spinoff and lists hundreds of technologies and businesses that spun off from the space program. Nobody planned that. It's just because uh -huh. they, Kennedy said, we got to get to the moon in a decade. And that's what the opportunity is in confronting climate change. We have a short window, but it's an enormous opportunity. And it's un-American to say, we can't do this, it'll cost too much. That's not the America I knew when I was studying in the United States. That's a great insight. And Jeff, I'd love to have you talk about, we've had many viewers writing in and, and saying, um, what can we do as individuals? And you've both raised the issue of COVID and how things have changed. Is this a moment for redressing our approach? What can people do? What's your advice to viewers who are listening in today? Well, um, Francis, I think COVID does remind us how organic and biological we really are. Um, it forced us, as David got to do with his family on his wonderful island retreat, to stay together, step back, take a breath. Um, I can tell you before COVID that year, what, just a little over a year ago, I traveled to 22 countries. This year, I've been on a plane twice. So that is the power of COVID. And a lot of us like to look at COVID to see how the earth got to bite back a little bit. A lot of anecdotal stories of fish returning to the waterways of Venice 
or wild sheep running down the streets of an urban environment in Europe. All these great, wonderful stories. A pride of lions taken over a, a, a highway in South Africa. The truth is we would need 20 to 30 years plus of COVIDs to truly try to get the genie back in the COVID bottle. So what COVID does is it does remind us that we can make a change, we can make a difference, but we need to make radical change and big differences. So what are the differences and changes we can make in our own lives? I would say is take a deep breath and know that you matter as an individual. Politically, the power of your vote. As a consumer, as David said, the, the resource you consume. We talk about palm oil plantations destroying rainforests in um, Southeast Asia. Well, one out of every 10 products in a US or Canadian supermarket contains palm oil. To recognize we are both a part of the challenge and we are a part of the solution in fixing the problem. So it's realizing the power you have in the decisions you make as a consumer, politically, and what can you do in your own community, beginning with resources and environments that are challenged, that need protection and need conservation. I think it's these pragmatic steps we make today. And as David said, what is our Sputnik moment? What is our Sputnik reality check, our moon launch moment, where we say, well, now let's look at this great dilemma we, where we face that our planet is in peril and our species is, is, is facing a fight for survival. What can we do with the technologies we have today to reduce significantly the 10 billion pounds of plastics we put in our oceans every year to wisely restore habitat, to build causeways of living wild communities, connecting protected habitats, Looking at the great successes we've had, Francis, in, um, for example, taking a species like the California condor, which was extinct in the wild and now survives, tinkering on the edge, but surviving in the wild. Recovered endangered species like black-footed ferrets. Black the bald ferret. eagle, which was once pushed to the brink of extinction, has recovered magnificently. So we know if we step forward and step up, we can make a difference but we're doing it for our children. We've been brought to our knees by a zoonotic virus, one that came from the animal world. Are countries doing enough to regulate wildlife trade? Is the US doing enough? Maybe David, you could take that quickly and then we may have time for one last question. I don't question. know, I'm a Canadian. I don't know, I'm a <laughs> Canadian, but I, I watched you live with four years of absolute insanity where the domination of economics and politics has overridden science. And, uh, you know, we had eight and a half years of a, of a prime minister who said, uh, we can't do anything about climate change, it'll destroy the economy. That's crazy economics. Here's Canada as a Northern country, probably more vulnerable to climate change than any other industrialized country. And the Inuit people in the North have been telling us for 20 years that climate change has kicked in. And we had eight and a half years of a prime minister who denied that this was even an issue that he wanted to consider. So this is a point we've run out of time. Of course, there are all kinds of ways that we all can have an impact. There are dozens of books out on what you can do. But right now, I believe the most important thing is we need big decisions. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has given us the challenge if we want 
climate to simply become chaotic, then or if we want to stop that, we've got to keep temperature rising above uh, two degrees, preferably keep it to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. That means we have to get rid of fossil fuels by 50% by 2030. I think it's an, a goal we won't be able to, to obtain, but we need government seeing the change in government in the United States and the attitude towards climate change has been huge. Whether or not he can drive that through Congress uh, in the way the split is in this country, I really, I, I wonder about it. So what I say is we saw before COVID, we saw this unbelievable movement of children coming up and saying, why should we go to school? We listen to the scientists and scientists are telling us we don't have a future the way we're going. That was very, very powerful. And it's tragic that COVID brought that to a halt. But I'm still working with young people saying, look, you kids don't vote, but your mom and dad do, your grandma and grandpa do, your aunts and uncles do. Now, when we come out of COVID, you've got to get them, all of them, to be actively engaged in politics and saying, we will only support politicians. I don't care what party you're in, but is climate change your number one issue? And uh, that's what we need at this time. We need to make this an issue governments will take seriously in the way that the United States did in 1957 when the Soviet yeah. Union launched Sputnik. Jeff, do you have any reason for optimism? We have to go very quickly, a last question, but any reason for optimism that we'll have this Sputnik moment? I do have I do have hope and and the recovery of 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 endangered species that I've actually physically experienced with my own daughter seeing black-footed ferrets she got to be a part of that this was a species case closed officially extinct three or four decades ago now there's 2,000 surviving in the wild I mean the reality is is if you look just to Africa for example a hundred years ago we had over 10 million elephants. Today, we only have 400,000 elephants remaining. The lion population in under 70 years has been reduced from half a million to 20,000 individuals. Only about 5,000 rhinos are left. We are at that breaking point. It is not too late, but it really requires a radical thinking of where we want to be on this planet with regard to what the natural resources our children will have. So yes, there is hope. We could look to the light of true success in conservation, but yet the door's closing fast. We're the last generation to make a difference, and that difference needs to happen now. But there is still hope. Well, we're going to take that message of hope, but also heard very clearly from you both about the breaking point. David Suzuki, Jeff Corwin, thank you both very much for joining me today on Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. And I'll be back soon with wildlife conservationist Krithi Karan. See you soon.
Good afternoon. Good morning. If you're just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers. I'm delighted to now welcome Dr. Chrissy Krithi Kuranth. She's the chief conservationist in Bangalore. And welcome, Krithi. You come from. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I had a slight delay there. I'm, apologies. You come from one of the most populous countries in the world, where there's a lot of interaction between wildlife and people. And I'd love you to for you to describe to us some of the challenges that presents and some of the solutions you have. So we at the Center for Wildlife Studies have done work over, across India. We've gone to over 3,000 villages trying to understand human-wildlife conflict. And this, this is people losing lives, people being injured, uh, losing livestock, having their crops destroyed, uh, having their property damaged. And our work has established actually that India is an extraordinarily high conflict country, but it's also a sign that a lot of the conservation efforts that have been made in the last 50 years have brought wildlife back. And the combination of shrinking habitats and success of conservation in some places, shrinking habitats in other places has led to people and large animals, particularly, you know, tigers, leopards, um, elephants coming into more frequent uh, um, contact, resulting in these uh, losses. So you have introduced innovation and technology to try to overcome some of these problems. Could you describe that to us, how it works and what sort of impact it's having? So having done the research, I, you know, I, I identified that, you know, in India, regardless of how poor or how rich you are, everybody has access to a mobile phone. So we launched the Wild Save program five years ago around two national parks in southern India. And it's as simple as if you have a conflict incident taking place with a leopard on your roof or an elephant in your farm, you call into us, our staff arrive on the scene and help you document the incident and file the claim. But we as an organization don't pay out the compensation. The government actually has set aside significant amount of money to pay the compensation. So the compensation actually comes from the government. We just act as the bridge between people and wildlife to make sure the claims are processed, there are no delays, and that you know when families suffer 30, 40 elephant crop raiding incidents in a season, that they don't get frustrated and then retaliate by you know electrocuting the animal. Rather, they call out to us and we are able to help them. And then do you anything, do anything about removing the animals so the incidents don't happen again? No, we don't do any of that. That is, uh, you know, the responsibility of the government. So our role is really to help and assist, you know, uh, assist in documenting the claim and making sure the, uh, the incident is recorded and people receive help. Because what happens uh, over a period of time, you know, it's not one incident. Some families may have, you know, 30, 50 incidents over the last five years. And as you can see, you know, in countries like the US, a wolf shows up in Colorado after, you know, decades, people go out and shoot it. Uh, and the difference about India is high densities of people still have enormous cultural, social tolerance for these losses, and they will not retaliate unless something really goes wrong. And typically it's when there's a human being that's injured or killed, they suffer a lot of losses. And my point is, you know, compensation is one way to assist people. And it's a sort of a short, our wild survey program is a short term uh, way to address this. 
but we're also investing in other solutions. We have a conservation education program called Wild Chalet, where we're working with hundreds of thousands of children living around these wildlife parks, getting them to understand and be excited about seeing a tiger, seeing an elephant, uh, building empathy and interest in wildlife and wild places. And that's more of a long-term solution where you're building stewardship in those communities that truly make the difference on whether something will survive or not. So, you know, um, for having done both of these programs, now with support from Rolex, we're able to kind of scale the work to a large part of India, and we're hoping to do this work across the entire Western Ghats, which is one of the world's 30 biodiversity hotspots, but it also has 27 million people living in and around wildlife. And I feel that if we can solve problems in India, which is really at the sort of the extreme edge of you know tension between people and wildlife, these solutions can be replicated, simplified, adapted to other parts of the world. How did you become interested in this work? It's so fascinating how it's developed. Is it deeply ingrained in your own background? So I had an amazing childhood. My dad is a well-known tiger conservationist and um, biologist himself, Dr. Ulas Karanth. So he started taking me to the jungle when I was a year old. So I you know, literally spent the first 16, 17 years of my childhood just watching animals and having two parents who were scientists got to see how you know scientific questions are asked, how do scientific projects get done, and really got this amazing firsthand glimpse into the beauty of science and, and research, but also saw the difficult conservation battles that he and many of his colleagues fought when I was a teenager, tried to rebel away from this uh, profession, but ultimately when I was doing my master's <laughs> at Yale, came back to following in his footsteps in some sense, but he's very much a ecologist, I'm very much on the human side because I feel that if you don't solve human problems, you're not going to be able to save these amazing species and amazing places on the planet. I've seen that you've brought art and photography and all sorts of other uh, sort of human elements into your work. Can you talk about that and how you integrate them into what is essentially human science? So for me, you know, I, I had the privilege of being chosen as National Geographic's 10,000 grantee, you know, 10 years ago. And when you work with an organization that's of such a powerful storyteller, you learn that any number of scientific publications are, is not going to get the message out. You need to make documentaries. You need to make, uh, you know, children write children's books. You need to get more creative ways of getting people to feel connected to animal life. And so all of our work now uses art and storytelling and games to engage a much broader set of people. Well, that's fascinating. And what's the most important message you think people should take away from animal-human interactions, whether it's foxes in downtown Washington, D.C. or tigers uh, in southern India? I think you know, species are resilient. This pandemic has millions of people sharing, you know, all these animals kind of walking on different streets around the world. Species know how to uh, come back. Nature knows how to heal itself. I think what we need to do as humans is to, you know, as Jeff and uh, David said, learn to step back, consume less, have a lower ecological footprint, and learn to share the planet with, you know, thousands and thousands of other species that have every right to be here as we do.
Yeah, David raised Bhutan as a good example of a country that had learned to uh, live in a slower way and, and with more acceptance of the, the land around people. Do you see a model in the work you're doing that could be translated to other countries beyond India? So even India is a very complex country. You know, we're 1.4 billion people. People's tolerance for wildlife varies across the country. So in Northwest India, there's far more tolerance and then Southern and Northeastern India, perhaps not as much. And so species are revered for uh, social reasons, cultural reasons, economic reasons. And I think you need to tap into that emotional side of why people care for particular species and build on that. I don't think it can just be a biologist's argument for saving species. And I think there's an amazing uh, set of ways to do that today. Well, talk a little bit more about them. You talked about children's books and about documentaries, but how do you communicate this message in a way that doesn't also have people you know, trespassing into territory or, or invading more in animal lands? So one thing we've done is, you know, our field experiences have connected us with adults in communities, children in communities, particularly focusing on people who live around wildlife areas. And we've kind of used the power of storytelling and making things relevant and context specific. You can't copy and paste this across the world. You have to talk about bears to somebody who sees bears. You've got to talk about wolves to somebody who sees wolves. You, and I think it has to be something tangible that they can see and feel. And for me, you know, during the pandemic, uh, CWS actually launched an amazing program which does community public health and outreach, where we're actually going into these remote communities, educating them about the big animals, why is there conflict happening, how do you stay safe, about the little guys. We've identified six zoonotic diseases common to this part of India where we work in. You know, what are these zoonotics? How do you minimize your risk to them beyond COVID-19? And, and then also we do also a first aid session of if you do get injured or hurt, this is what you do and don't. And I think this level of awareness has to be there. We're working with, you know, frontline government uh, agencies, community organizations for them to contextualize what matters and who do they live in, how do they cope with loss, how do they cope with injury. So take us five or 10 years ahead in your own work. Where would you like to be and what would you like to see happening? I think, you know, for me, one of the things is unlike the US and China, which have more than 15% of land set aside for wildlife, Bhutan and Costa Rica that have more than 30% set aside, India unfortunately only has 5% of land protected. That 5% is actually reasonably well managed by the government. But I think we need to aspire to rewild India and that we shouldn't be settling at 5%. We should at least aspire to build the space for wildlife to about 10% of the country. It is possible. There are private uh, ways of doing this. There are community uh, engagements that can facilitate creating community and individual managed reserves. There's a lot of successful models of that across the world, but not so much in India. So I really want you know, large corporations, individuals and communities to actually engage in, in saving wildlife in India beyond what, what is mandated by the government at this point. We talked in the earlier conversation of you, and you've raised it too, of the, the sort of temporary benefits and awareness that COVID has brought to us from the arrival of a new zoonotic disease to our sudden sights of wildlife taking over human areas. 
do you see it as a moment that reset our relationship with the world around us? I hope so. I'm not sure. I think uh, it terrifies me today where when people are still talking about the pandemic, they're talking about sort of adding, uh, you know, solutions post the pandemic. And I'm like, we need to go back to the root cause of why are zoonotics emerging from forested areas or and this one may have come from China, but the next one could very well come from India or, or Africa. And we need to fundamentally realize when people are tinkering with nature, when you're fragmenting habitats and, and you know, you have people going in and out, you are going to cause diseases to jump. And uh, unfortunately, my biggest fear is that this is not the first one. Uh, you know, we may get past this one with, with some vaccines, but in our lifetimes, we're going to see many more pandemics and epidemics emerge. And when are we going to kind of think of long-term solutions rather than short-term solutions of, you know, solving a situation like this? Just one last question. Are you optimistic that we will come up with those long-term solutions? Absolutely. I, I mean, conservation is a very depressing field. We lose most of the time, but I fundamentally believe I've done this for 23 years. I will do this till I no longer exist. Uh, I've seen technology, I've seen education, I've seen films, I've seen a whole range of things get people to care more for, you know, non-human life on the planet. And we need to push harder on that, build a broader base of people who care for wildlife. And I think we're at that, we are the generation that's going to kind of going to define the difference between extinction and rewilding. And we have to do more at this point. Prithi Karanth, thank you very much for that reminder about the importance of rewilding and for your ultimate optimism. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more about our climate solutions, you'll see the email address or the site at the bottom of the page here. Let me read it to you. It's climate, the climate solutions content is at wapo.st slash climate solutions. And it's there at the bottom of the page. Thank you very much for joining me today. My colleague Robin Gavan will be back later at 12.30 with a great event with Diane von Furstenberg. That's Robin Gavan at 12.30 today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.